back to the Contemporary Educator Podcast, a podcast dedicated to all my fellow teachers out there who are trying to balance the many demands placed on the contemporary educator. I'd like to start by acknowledging that we are on the unceded traditional territories of the Lekwungen peoples of the Esquimalt and Songhees nations, and I'm an uninvited settler to these lands. So today I'm talking about attachment theory. <clears throat> and attachment theory is, is a concept that is more often applied to parenting or even therapeutic styles and and family therapy but it has just as much importance and relevance in education and we don't always talk about it in those terms and we don't always consider how attachment styles can differ from student to student and how they can really greatly influence our relationships with students a lot of the time we are given kind of blanket approaches for for relationship building and although you know, there are some really good blanket strategies that we can employ. <clears throat> like, I mean, I post about them on my blog and, and my podcast all the time, you know, like collaborative expectation setting and things like that are really good foundations for building collective relationship too. It is really important to know that not every student's relationship style is going to be the same and their ability to build relationships and maintain those relationships with you and with their peers throughout the year can look different depending on their lived experience. So that's essentially what attachment theory says. Essentially, it's saying that students due to their previous lived experience, their previous experiences with attachment and healthy relationships in their lives can determine the future outcome and successes of different relationships. Our students are learning, just just like we do, our students are learning how to relate to the world around them because of the experiences they've had in the past. And their attachment and ability to maintain relationships is no different. So I've I've written a blog post on attachment theory and uh, you know, it kind of touches on some of, you know, the different styles of attachment and what you might see. And I'm just kind of going over some of that stuff again and, and maybe in a little more detail with some more examples. So if you are wanting the condensed version, I encourage you, it's a short read. I encourage you to go onto the Contemporary Educator blog and read attachment theory, a teacher's guide. But otherwise, you're going to get the same kinds of information here, maybe a little more developed. So stick with me for Attachment Theory, a Teacher's Guide podcast edition. So attachment theory in its conception is a a psychological and evolutionary perspective on relationships and how people function in these relationships. It starts kind of by looking at child caregiver relationships and uh, it It essentially posits that understanding these relationships is what's going to help us understand future relationships. And similarly, relationships can determine behavior. And that's a really big one for teachers to consider because we are often navigating many different personalities in our spaces and because of that, many different behaviors. And what behavior strategy works really well for one student doesn't work well for another. And that can make it really challenging to kind of have a repertoire of tried and true behavior strategies. Of course, I talk a lot about trauma-informed behavior strategies, and my goal with this podcast and with my blog are to give you ample resources so that you can kind of have a ton of them in your back pocket. But also understanding why some strategies are trauma-informed and other ones aren't is also really helpful. And that's kind of what we're looking at today. 
being trauma informed is a lot of different things. And it's not just understanding that every student has trauma. It's also understanding that that trauma has impacted not only their behaviors and the way they relate to the world, but also their ability to relate to you. And that's where attachment theory comes in. So as with all behaviors, behavior is an adaptive response to create a sense of physical, emotional, spiritual, or psychological safety based on their past experience in which these specific behaviors have actually helped serve this young person. Now, these behaviors may not be helpful or serving in all areas of this person's life, and that's where we can often find it challenging. Like, for example, you know, a, a student who um, is experiencing selective mutism, meaning that in many cases they just don't talk, they choose instead to not speak, and in other situations they are able to communicate verbally. That's an adaptive response to learning in some, in some situations that being quiet is a safer option. In other situations, of course we all know, there are going to be times and situations where it is imperative that that young person speaks up. Teaching students to, I guess, abandon those kinds of, of adaptive strategies in favor of other ones is a long process. It isn't one that happens overnight and chances are isn't even one that's going to happen in just the year that they, they, they have you as their teacher. However, you can work to create meaningful attachments so that student can start to see and connect new behaviors to new desired outcomes. And some of the ways that we can do that is by really trying to bolster as much as possible a secure attachment. So secure attachment is the first one that I'm going to talk about, and that's kind of the quote unquote ideal attachment style. It shows that the student or young person, and I'll, I'll kind of flip flop back and forth between talking about them in terms of being like a young person who might be a child, your own child versus your student. But uh, a secure attachment is when a young person is able to fully express themselves, they feel safe, um, they are willing to take risks and explore different things because they know that even if the risk doesn't go as planned or the attempt doesn't turn out the way they thought it would, that they have a soft landing. They trust that even if they make a mistake, that you are still there as a support system for them. They don't feel shame or guilt around making a mistake in the same way. Uh, they might acknowledge, you know, regret or remorse, depending on what kind of mistake it is, but it's not uh, filled with shame and guilt. They aren't uh, expressing the same fear of failure or the same fear that their relationship with you is constantly in a state of peril or that their relationship with you is being questioned or challenged every time something happens. So a secure attachment is really what our goal is. That's our goal to build with students so that when they leave our classroom, they feel like they can come back to us and connect with us anytime, but they don't feel 
as though their relationship with us is uh, contingent on something else, on their success or ability in some other way. Uh, the next kind of attachment that we often see is anxious ambivalent. And if you've done any attachment research in the past, you might find that there's different terms for these kinds of attachment styles, but there's really four main types of attachment. So I talked about it secure, and that's, of course, our goal. And many students uh, will really struggle with a secure attachment because they may not have ever had one before. So we have to be mindful of that, that we can continue to assert our own healthy boundaries. We can continue to support the young person to take bigger risks and, um, and model the fact that taking a risk and not getting the desired outcome doesn't mean that the relationship is in jeopardy or that the relationship is part of that negotiation. And modeling that over time can help a student see what a secure attachment actually looks like but remembering that it does take time and that one year with you might not be the thing that completely changes their perspective on attachment, but it is kind of planting a seed. So keep that in mind as we look at the other attachment styles and how to identify them. So like I said, the next one we're looking at is anxious ambivalent. So an anxious ambivalent attachment, you might see a student who's very fearful of rejection. They might appear to be quite dependent on other people like their peers or you. They might romanticize people and relationships and uh, in so doing, they're looking for a lot of validation and reassurance that they're doing things right. They might be quite reactive and they might respond with quite big emotions. Some that maybe seem a little unpredictable. In young people, so mostly teenage years, we often see these young folks identifying more with their peers and they might keep adults a little bit more at a distance. There's typically a stronger feeling of emotional and physical safety with their peers. So this might be a young person who has come from a family that didn't, didn't necessarily have a consistent and secure adult in the home, but maybe there's lots of siblings and those siblings have been a great support for one another. They may have also been a young person, you can see this attachment style quite a lot with young people who have been in the foster care system or who have been in um, group homes, things like that, where they have really struggled to, um, to find meaningful connection with one consistent adult caregiver. And that's not their fault that that happened, but it's the nature of, uh, of what they've been through. We might see a young person uh, who is, you know, starting relationships really young, um, like romantic relationships really young, and kind of putting a lot of their energies into maintaining these relationships. Whether we as adults can see that relationship as being healthy or not, uh, the young person might feel very dependent and focused on that relationship. So what does this mean for us as educators? Essentially, uh, we want to make sure that the young person, because they, they likely will be quite apologetic a lot of the time, they might uh, ask if you're angry with them, and they might be really nervous every time they kind of come to talk to you about anything. And the best way that you can support that need is really just providing that reassurance when they're needing it. Also letting them know that 
your role as their teacher isn't to get mad at them. Your role as their teacher is always going to be to support them. And that you can do that from a variety of ways and that school is the place where you're allowed to make mistakes safely without being judged or criticized for them and without it impacting the meaningful relationships that you have in your life. Uh, further, you know, these might be the students who really tie their relationship with you into the grade that they receive from you. So they might be really upset when they get an assignment back that they thought they did really well on and you've maybe given it lots of feedback. Um, they might see this as you not liking them anymore. So in those kinds of instances, really taking time to explain their grade to them before giving out a report card or a progress report or even before handing back an assignment can help to quell those worries. So trying to be proactive before a student feels the need to apologize or seek reassurance, start kind of offering some of that to begin with. Also making sure that, that you're mindful that your relationship with every student in the class is modeling for that student what you will get upset about or what you will react to versus what you won't. And so these students, anxious, uh, anxious avoidance students may be extremely observant of the world around them and might notice the time when you asked somebody to wait in the hallway because they were behaving a certain way or they're very likely to notice when somebody didn't do well on an exam or test and you know you hand it back and there's in their eyes or what they're observing or perceiving a change in you or the relationship with the other student. They're taking all of that stuff in. So we want to be really mindful of that kind of that kind of thing and really make sure that we're modeling consistent uh, behavior support for every student because that's really going to make a difference. Well, it's going to make a difference for your whole class, but it's also really going to make a difference for your anxious avoidance students. Also, uh, for students who are anxious avoidant and maybe putting a lot more stock into their peer relationships, be mindful that, yeah, that's okay, but also it is important for them to have other adult, sorry, that's my dog, for them to have other adult connections. And so uh, this might be a student, if you are noticing some of these qualities develop where they're seeking a lot of reassurance and they're very apologetic, this might be a student who'd really benefit from a connection to the school counselor or even just a little more attention during the day, you know, from you. A little more checking in around how they're doing and what needs they need met. Um, so that's the second kind of attachment style that we often see. Oh, sorry, that was anxious ambivalent. The next one we're looking at is dismissive avoidant. So in dismissive avoidant attachment, we see a young person who's showing little emotion, um, they might not care if you're there one minute or gone the next, or it appears that they don't care that you're there. Um, they typically will be very risk avoidant um, and risk adverse in terms of um, academic risk or trying new things. We may also see this young person not super engaged with their peers or having a lot of uh, peer connection or social interaction. And quite often that's because this young person has kind of learned over time that safety comes from themselves, that in order to be safe and look after themselves, it's better for them to be alone. They may or may not fully make connection with you and may need a lot more, uh, 
a lot more from you in order to make that connection meaningful. Uh, the next one, uh, or sorry, before I move on to that, the way that we can kind of address that in school is to be mindful that we don't want to force ourselves onto a student who is presenting in this way, but we do want to be available and we do want that student to acknowledge and see that we are there for them and that we recognize what their needs might be. This is also the student, interestingly enough, that is more prone to maybe acting out or expressing different levels of behavior when you're not there. So when you have a substitute teacher in and that sub leaves a note that says, so-and-so was having a really hard day and here's all the behaviors I noticed, that's when you're likely to be like, oh, this is a dismissive avoidant attachment style because they still, even though they aren't fully connected to you, they still feel as though you are the safe adult in their world and the inconsistency is really stressful for them. And being mindful that this attachment style has emerged as a protective factor. So we want to make sure that we are understanding of that. These students fear being attached to you because they also are really aware of their own emotional safety in that they know that within 10 months, they're going to end up with a different teacher. And so that as much as you are consistent from day to day, they're also really fearful of what happens when you're not their person anymore. So they are likely coming at it from the perspective of what's even the point? What difference will this person make long term in my life? Because every few months I'm with somebody new anyways. These again can be young people who have been in foster systems, but we're more often seeing this from young people who uh, maybe don't have any siblings or fewer siblings or aren't connected to them in the same way. And of course, this is never a one size fits all approach. You might be like, well, I have a student like this and he's got six siblings and, and two lovely parents. And um, of course, it can be different for every single kid. Remember that these are protective factors that evolved due to the unique situations that each young person is in. So there's many reasons that somebody can develop a dismissive avoidant attachment style or um, an anxious avoidant. Like there's lots of different reasons that somebody can develop these attachment styles. So in addressing a student with dismissive avoidant attachment, taking an active interest in their interests can really help for them to open up a little bit. Um, and then just doing your best to prepare them for times when you might not be around. I know that's not always possible. Teachers get sick too, and there are emergencies that we can't account for, but there are also lots of times when we know that there's an absence coming and we can let our students know, hey, I'm not gonna be here tomorrow and uh, we're gonna have a substitute teacher in. It's somebody that you know, it's somebody that you don't know, whatever the case may be. And here's kind of the plan for tomorrow, but I'm gonna be back on Thursday. So just giving them a heads up around what your absence looks like can help to ease that anxiety when they walk into the room and see, oh my God, there's somebody totally different here. Finally, uh, we're looking at fearful avoidant attachment style. Now, this one is a young person who is perceivably disconnected, they have difficulty with boundaries. They might be really hot and cold in relationships and present with very unpredictable behavior. They might have uh, 
a really big physical response to external or environmental stimuli and a real fear of the unknown and a fear of strangers. We see this a lot in young folks who have had a pattern of unpredictable caregivers, whether they've changed um, consistently or they have parents or guardians who are um, lacking consistency in their availability and um, their presence. We often see this from students who, um, again, who've been in and out of foster care, who have a parent leave and then reemerge in their life sporadically. It may include a particularly unsafe caregiver situation in which the young person seeks some benefit to being close to a caregiver in terms of physical or emotional safety, but doesn't have um, real attachment to this individual. So, for example, a young person who has been in a situation where um, one of their caregivers was was physically violent and they attach themselves to the other person who isn't physically violent. We might see that that young person attach themselves for physical safety but keep themselves distant because there isn't real emotional safety. Because there's always that thought of why are we still in this situation that's unsafe or they may have been violated or, or physically assaulted and therefore as much as the physical closeness to that other caregiver provides some form of physical safety. There's also a distrust there as to why they are still in a situation that's unsafe or in the past why they were hurt in the first place. Uh, interestingly, we do find that these students prioritize their caregiver as their source of attachment, again, because they're looking for that perception of safety. <clears throat> They may have a low self-worth, a low sense of self-worth and self-importance. And uh, in schools, we might see them experiencing really intensive anxiety responses, such as a physical shutdown or varying, varying degrees of uh, panic attacks or dissociation. And although, of course, every student benefits from counseling support, these students might actually need additional counseling support because they may need specific uh, referrals to community-based counseling, family counseling, or um, even uh, ministry involvement. These students may also love you one minute, hate you the next, and blame you for things that are beyond your control. And they may have big emotional responses to things that seem like they should be otherwise insignificant. They will often need you to demonstrate how to set clear and consistent boundaries. So that's one approach that you can take is continuing to model what your boundaries are. For example, like not sharing out your cell phone number or meeting up with students on the weekends, things like that. I know everybody has kind of different boundaries around what that can look like, but um, being really consistent and clear with your with setting your boundaries and modeling what that can be like is really important for these students to be able to learn how to do that themselves. Taking time out of your day to really genuinely listen to their concerns, regardless of how they're presenting them, whether they seem angry or volatile in the moment, actually stopping whatever you're doing to put full attention onto these students can really help to deescalate and refocus. There's this assumption sometimes for these students that you're not gonna listen or engage anyway. So when they're telling us something important and we're still typing away on our computer or we've got our phone out in front of us or whatever we're doing that is 
even just mildly distracting, can signal to that student that their issue isn't the primary thing. And that's when we'll start to see an escalation in the behavior. And we may also see that they are um, that they are blaming us again for our inattentiveness. So even just a simple signal of closing your computer and turning to the student fully can be really huge in signifying that what they have to say matters and that you're here 100% to listen. We can engage in open and honest, patient and transparent conversations with them about boundaries and behavior and uh, giving them opportunities to step outside and take breaks whenever they need to can help them feel autonomous. It's really important that these students feel autonomous and that they don't feel as though um, you have full control over everything they do in a day. These are students who you might notice will escalate if you ask them to wait to use the bathroom, if they're not able to get a drink of water, if they, um, I don't know, have some sort of an unmet need. And that, again, is because they are actually, strangely enough, relating to you. So what they're doing is saying, you're supposed to be a person who helps me meet my need and you're not letting me do that. So they're challenging you on it and this is an opportunity for you to let them have some autonomy and also show them that you will help them meet their basic needs and really model for them what a healthy caregiver relationship can look like. When these students might experience dissociation, Letting them take that time. Don't try and snap them back to attention. That doesn't work for any student who dissociates, but letting them kind of have that moment. Um, the best way to describe dissociation is anywhere but here. And it's when a student is in emotional distress, either from something that's happening currently or something that uh, PTSD response or response to something that's happened previously. And their conscious mind leaves their physical body. And dissociation can look a little different for a lot of folks. They can, for some people, they can still fully engage, but then not really know what has happened afterwards. It's almost like blacking out. Um, but trying to snap students out of a dissociation is uh, really unsafe for them. A dissociation is a protective factor and allowing them to have that time is really important. Um, knowing that the goal over time with their counselor is to find new strategies of coping, but that's not your role. So letting them have that moment to dissociate and then coming to them afterwards to give them a recap of the lesson one-to-one -one can help them feel less anxious in your space overall. It's also an important time to let students choose where they sit in your class, who they want to work with, because again, giving the student as much autonomy in your space as possible will help them feel like they can trust you and will help prevent some of those bigger behaviors that we might see from students who present with this kind of attachment style. So like I said, you know, we might not be able to actually change an attachment style within one year, but over time, the consistency in how teachers across the board model attachment can help students learn new attachment styles. Neural pathways, I've said this before, are never concrete and are never there permanently. Um, we, can, we can forge new neural pathways throughout our lifespan and that's really important information and that's also really exciting. So a student who is presenting with fearful avoidant or, um, or dismissive avoid, avoidant 
and who is, you know, really struggling to make meaningful connections, that's not a lifelong sentence for them. They don't necessarily have to employ these protective strategies throughout their lifespan when they start to realize what situations require them and which ones don't. And so that's really what we can do as teachers is teach students how these different environments um, can present opportunity for meaningful attachment and healthy boundaries. So just as a recap, the four attachment styles that we've looked at today are secure attachments. And of course, like that's our kind of goal and what we want to model the most. We also have anxious avoidant, dismissive avoidant, and fearful avoidant. Or I should say anxious ambivalent. Sorry, I keep using those interchangeably and I shouldn't. Um, anxious ambivalent attachment. So um, I hope that you found some value in this and that you're able to take some of these tools to employ them in your own classes. And even if you don't have the concrete tools that you're looking at, just the understanding can really help you to figure out what tools are the best approach for your class because you'll start to know what your students are needing. If you have any questions about this, I really ask you to reach out to me, send me an email on the Contemporary Educator website, or find me on Instagram at teach.emote.repeat. And uh, don't forget to leave a review, let me know what you think, and subscribe. And then you'll get updates every two weeks when there's a new episode out on something else related to teaching and mental health.